1: Jack Assari, welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the Great state. I'm Scott Braddock, the editor at Quorumreport.com and ace reporter at The Houston Chronicle Jeremy Wallace is here as always. Hello, sir, did you have a good week off?
2: Oh, yeah. But but after, you know, five or four days of Supreme Court hearings, I feel like I've Mm -hmm. been in Washington, D.C. at the Supreme Court for a week.
1: (laughs) And any time in D.C. feels like, you know, double the time you would spend anywhere else. So it's really like we didn't even take a week off. Right. Come on, listeners. Stick with us here. I had so many people complaining last week, only that they missed us. So that was that was nice. It, It did. Yeah, it did my heart good. So let's start with that. The um, the confirmation hearings for Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson, um, fascinating stuff. And you know, you get some substantive things that are said, some not so substantive things that are said. And I like it, Jeremy, when the senators comment on each other. Yes. I'm going to start with something. I'm going to start with something that was uh, said by a non Texan, and you will understand why very quickly. Uh, Senator Ben Sasse, where is he from? uh, Nebraska. Yes. Is that right? Um, He was saying. And this is a fascinating discussion in and of itself. One thing about these Supreme Court uh, hearings, so they cover the waterfront. They cover everything because whoever is going to be on that court gets a lifetime appointment and they are going to weigh in on all aspects of American life. Right. So the senators want to know what they think about uh, all these different things. And, of course, sometimes the person who's uh, being confirmed, sometimes they can answer in a very straightforward way. Other times, people who would say that they don't want activist judges will act as if they want a judge to weigh in on policy questions. Right. Which is, which would be the opposite. Right. That would yeah. be being an activist judge. Right. Well, Senator Sass was saying that one thing that's wrong with the Senate's. And with the u.s house with the legislative branch is that there are cameras everywhere and there's been a long you know television cameras and there's been a long-running debate about whether the supreme court should also have television cameras it's one of the few institutions that's still sort of shrouded in uh you know a little bit of uh, i don't i don't want to say uh, secrecy but a little bit of mystery because we don't actually as you know everyday americans see inside the room yeah. while they're doing this stuff right you can listen to the audio recordings but you never see video of Supreme Court proceedings, what do you think about that? By the way, Jeremy.
2: Yeah, those those artist renderings of the Supreme Court, you know, hearings are all like you wonder. Like, imagine if we were doing that for other things. Still, you know, it's mm-hmm. like could we just like draw? Let me draw you a picture of how uh, that you know the Texas Legislature worked today. <laughs> it's right. like it's hard to convey what the heck really did happen. <laughs>
1: right so there, there are good arguments for or and against uh, having the cameras in that room senator sass doesn't want them there and listen to his reasoning this is why he says that if he were a supreme court justice he and because that's up to them by the way that's up to the justices if they wanted to decide to have cameras they could do that uh, sass said if it was up to him he would not have the cameras and here's what he said about it
3: cameras change human behavior we know this you don't have the same kinds of conversation over the dinner table uh, with your family when you're wrestling through issues uh, and apologizing for something and saying, I said this before, but maybe I should modify what I said. I was, my tone was jerky. My substance didn't account for your position. Um, th- there's a whole bunch of things that humans can do if they're not immediately mindful of some distant camera audience that they might be trying to create a soundbite for and uh, Instagram can be useful for some small things but for intellectual discourse it is not a friend Um, and I think we should recognize that the jackassery we often see around here um, is partly because of people mugging for short term uh, camera opportunities and it is definitely um, a second and third and fourth order effect that the court should think through um, before it has advocates in there who are not only trying to persuade you nine justices um, but also trying to get on cable that night uh, or create a viral video.
1: Because there are so many cameras in that room where he was speaking, Jeremy, there are different angles of the video that I saw of him saying that. And the one that you tweeted revealed that the guy staring Sass down as he was saying that is Ted Cruz, which is interesting because, man, he didn't say it outright, but I'm pretty sure that's who he was talking about, at least in that moment.
2: Yeah, imagine a world in the United States Senate where there is no camera, and I just kept mm-hmm. thinking of that—you know—the phrase of a tree falls in the forest and nobody's there to, you know, hear it. Did it really fall? It's like, or mm. did it make a sound? Well, in this case, if you know Ted Cruz in the Senate reading a children's book uh, to the masses in a Senate chamber, but it's no television coverage, did mm-hmm. it happen? <laughs> you know, it's right. like that guy needs TV. He's been able to figure out a way to you know, make himself basically a national figure, you know, going back to his first days in the Senate, right?
1: Yes, he has been doing this for years. And as a member of the Senate Committee on the Judiciary, he and of course, Texas has Two, both of our senators are on the Judiciary Committee and get to question these nominees. And with the shifts in the Supreme Court over the last well, few years uh, and, the, and the big shifts in the Supreme Court, our senators have questioned all these new people, right? Yeah. Cruz had a long exchange with uh, Joe Biden's uh, – President Biden's um, nominee for the Supreme Court, uh, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson. And she seems to be on track to be confirmed. Uh, The Democrats have the votes to do that. And we saw this week uh, that some uh, prominent Republicans, including the Republican leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, said he was going to vote no uh, on uh, Judge Jackson, along with Senator Cruz and some other people. I like how they try to be coy about it, uh, Jeremy, and act as if I'm not sure if I'm going to vote for her or not. And then, of course, Senator Cruz said that he would not vote to confirm uh, someone who is eminently qualified to be on the court. And we should also say here, this seems uh, extra like theater to me, extra performative, because as I said, the votes are there. And on top of the votes being there, this won't change the ideological makeup of the court, right? She's going to be replacing uh, Justice Breyer, uh, who of course is another uh, one of the more liberal members of the court. So Cruz was playing the hits. He wanted to talk about gender He wanted to talk about and, you know, this would be uh, in relation to all of the issues about uh, trans folks that we've heard about recently. He wanted to talk about uh, the idea that the judge has been soft on crime. He wanted to talk about um, CRT of Of all things, critical race theory. Let's start with gender. Here's their exchange. Here's Cruz and Judge Jackson talking about that.
0: So yesterday, uh, under under questioning from Senator Blackburn, uh, you told her that, that you couldn't define what a woman is, uh, that you were not a biologist, which, which I think you're the, the only Supreme Court nominee in history who's been unable to answer the question, what is a woman? Let me ask you as a judge, how would you determine if a plaintiff had Article Three standing uh, to challenge a gender-based rule, regulation, policy, uh, without being able to determine what a woman was.
4: So, Senator, I know that I'm a woman. I know that um, Senator Blackburn is a woman, and the woman who I um, admire most in the world is in the room today, my mother. Um, it sounded as though well, but, the but, but question but, but was... But let me
0: ask, under the modern leftist sensibilities, if if I decide right now that, that I'm a woman... Um, then apparently I'm a woman. Does that mean that I would have Article Three standing to challenge a gender-based restriction?
4: Senator, to the extent that you are asking me about um, who has the ability to bring lawsuits based on gender, those kinds of issues are working their way through the courts, and I'm not able to comment on them.
1: Of course, Cruz was not satisfied with that. So let's get even more ridiculous. Okay, if if, if I can change my gender if I can be a
0: woman and then an hour later if I decide I'm not a woman anymore, I guess I would lose Article Three standing. Uh, tell me, does that same principle apply to other protected characteristics? For example, I'm, I'm an Hispanic man. Could, could I decide I was an Asian man? W- would I have the ability to be an Asian man and challenge Harvard's discrimination because I made that decision?
4: Senator, I'm not able to answer your question. You're asking me about hypotheticals and um, well, I'm asking you how
0: you would assess standing if I, if I came in and said I have decided I identify as an Asian man.
4: I would assess standing the way I assess other legal issues, which is to listen to the arguments made by the parties, consider the relevant precedents uh, and the constitutional principles involved and make a determination.
1: In other words, she's not going to make up the answer on the spot, right? If she had a question in front of her about standing and it had to do with whether the person was Asian, I would guess that they would do some sort of, uh, you know, genealogical study. They would try to figure out, you know, whether the person was Asian, if that was the case. Um, Did you know, and I was uh, listening to some legal scholars talk about this, did you know in the federal code, federal law, it never defines woman? No, ever. I did not know that. It, no. it, well, so, okay. So, so <laughs> these are things, as, as the judge said, these are things that were, you know, are working their way through the courts right now because all of these issues surrounding transgender people, et cetera, have become uh, just uh, flashpoints, uh, you know, in American society these days. Did you see the YouGov poll the other day? And I'm, you know, question they polling, of course, it's this online stuff, but I thought it was interesting. That uh, when it came to these social issues and culture war issues, uh, they asked people for their perception of how large different groups were. They asked about, you know, whether or how, how many people, what percentage of Americans do you think are transgender? And the number would be something north of 10% when the real number is more like 1%, right? And how many people are gay and lesbian? And people would think it's 30% when it's really more like 1% or 2% something like that. We keep hearing about these culture war issues, and it gives us an idea that these things are really outsized parts of American life when really uh, they're very real for the people who are going through them, you know, personally, but it's more of a political thing, right? So we'll keep going here. Senator Cruz also wanted to talk about, you guessed it, CRT, critical race theory. And Judge Jackson is on the board of a private school in Washington, Georgetown Day School, where Cruz says that books in the library are focused on CRT.
0: They include a book called Anti-Racist Baby uh, by Ibram Kendi. And there are portions of this book that that, that I find really quite remarkable. One portion of the book says babies are taught to be racist or anti-racist. There is no neutrality. Another portion of the book they recommend to babies confess when being racist. Now this is a book that is taught at Georgetown Day School to students in pre-k through second grade, so four through seven years old. Um, Do do, do you agree with this book that is being taught with kids that, that babies are racist?
4: Senator, I do not believe that any child should be made to feel as though they are racist, or though they are not valued, or though they are less than, that they are victims, that they are oppressors. I don't believe in any of that. But what I will say is that when you asked me whether or not this was taught in schools, critical race theory. My understanding is that critical race theory as an academic theory is taught in law schools. And to the extent that you were asking the question, I understood you to be addressing public schools. Georgetown Day School, just like the religious school that Justice Barrett was on the board of is a private school.
0: Okay, so so you agree critical race theory is taught at Georgetown Day
4: School? I don't know because the board is not, um, the board does not control the curriculum, the board does not focus on that. That's not what we do as board members.
1: Not, Not only is the school that she's talking about where she's on the board, not only is it similar to the private school that Justice Amy Coney Barrett sends her children to and, and is, you know, is involved with that school, it's also very similar to St. John's in Houston. Do you know whose kids go to St. John's oh, in yeah. Houston? <laughs> I have a yeah, guess. <laughs> Senator, Senator, Senator Cruz, yes. And, and and the fact that Senator Cruz, and, and, and I'm pointing that out because and, you know, it's a great school by all accounts, they also teach what's called anti-racism at St. John's where where Cruz sends his children it's interesting to me that he's asking her about Georgetown Day School because in relation to race there is a fascinating history for Georgetown Day School did you know it was the first integrated school in Washington DC the reason that it's a private school is because when they set it up at public schools they were still segregated yeah. and the people who set up Georgetown Day School wanted to be, wanted to integrate the children so they moved forward with that jeremy this is once again all of the hits that the republicans want to talk about in elections right crt i'm going to get to soft on crime in just a little bit but all of this stuff it is the uh red meat we're we're seeing a red meat buffet as you have put it before at these hearings
2: yeah and it's really and, and you know if you listen back at you know her comments you know back to you know senator cruz you know listen to that that you know breath of air she has was it a sigh yes. was it like you know it's like th- there's no way to quote that accurately but you could just you know, like you just have to hear it and judge for yourself you know you know what that response was but yeah th- this is like you know supreme court hearings you know they 're not for everybody you' know, like you know a, a lot of the general right. public will watch you know these things, you know, sure, you know, like in some cases bit. you know it 's like everybody yeah. watched a little of the Clarence Thomas you know one at the time you know it 's like because sure. it was on network television at that point but like yeah. but really, the people who love this, who watch this like crazy are on Fox News. They're watching that gavel gavel coverage. They're the people who are in the Federal Society who like who go to Republican events and you know are really intensely into this. And so for these Republicans on the Judiciary Committee, they know there's a show that is going on in little you know, cafes and bars and restaurants all over the country, in the middle part of the country. You know, it's like, think of all those little towns, you know, in Texas. Fox News is on. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're watching this take place, and so all yeah. these Republican senators are particularly not that not that you know Democratic senators know how to do this too. You know, look sure. back a couple of years ago, and oh, yes. Amy Klobuchar mm-hmm. and you know Cory Booker and mm-hmm. you know uh, yeah even Kamala Harris, who was in it on the Senate Judiciary Committee, they knew the moment that they had to kind of really speak to a portion of their electorate. Well, that's what the Republicans were doing here. They saw who they were talking to. And, and look, and that's a really you know, heavily political view of it. I'm not saying that, like, there aren't some legitimate points that were being raised by oh, sure. some senators, mm-hmm. you know, who you, Republicans, but even Sass's response, you know, what he was saying was acknowledgement that everybody knows this thing is going all out into the country. He was talking to his people in Nebraska, like, and he knew it, and he was trying to send a message to them as much as he was to the other senators. And that's what. You watch Cruz and all the other Republicans do. It. They go, "Okay, here's mm-hmm. our chance. Let's make it big."
1: <laughs> it's interesting. The uh, and, you know he's a Republican. His voters are Republicans in Nebraska. I think there is just generally, and, I, and I'm being very overly broad with this comment. Republicans in Nebraska are just nicer people than they are in some, <laughs> in some other places. You know, they're conservative, but they're just nicer. They don't get, want to get into this whole you know name calling and everything like that. Now, as I said. Cruz also wanted to get into it with uh, with Judge Brown about excuse me, Judge Brown Jackson about uh, crime. And you saw Cruz and uh, Senator Tom Cotton, some of the other Republicans really trying to grill uh, her about a handful of cases that she handled uh, as a judge that had to do with child pornography. And the issues surrounding it get a little complicated uh, because she's talking about the idea, and this is um, really interesting. You saw Senator uh, Lindsey Graham uh, saying to her, saying to Judge Jackson, that uh, anybody who has child pornography should go to jail for 50 years. That's my opinion. When she had sent some people who were convicted to prison uh, for child pornography possession for um, I think as little as three or four months uh, in one case. In other cases it was for a few years uh, and there was a range of sentences. The thing about uh, uh, Senator Graham's comments is it's not the case that everyone who's convicted of uh, child porn gets the same sentence, right? Yeah. I mean, the, all of them are cu- accused of, of various crimes that are different. Um, and as judge Jackson was trying to point out, There's a differentiation that's made among the different defendants when they go into court and they're being sentenced. Some are simply seen by the legal system as worse than others, and so they get worse sentences, right? And I would point out that if Senator Cruz and Senator Graham, who have both been in the Senate for years, Graham a lot longer than him, if they wanted it to be the case that all child pornography uh, possessors, if they wanted it to be the case that all of them go to prison for 50 years, They could do that as senators, right? They could pass a bill that says this is the law, right? This is the mandatory minimum sentence for any possession of child pornography is 50 years, if that's what they wanted to do. So you hear Cruz going into this with Judge Jackson, and this is one of my favorite parts of the hearing. The chairman, Dick Durbin, uh, who's a veteran from Illinois, he's he's a real Chicago-style politician. Um, He tries to cut off Cruz here by banging the gavel. And Cruz is saying, you can bang the gavel all you want. I'm going to keep trying to get an answer out of Judge Jackson about these cases. And here's how that went down.
0: Just 6,700 images You come in 57 months, why did you sentence him to just 57 months in the Stewart case? Do you want to address that? Because you're claiming it's cherry picking. In fact, you're welcome to explain any of these cases, but let's take the Stewart case. Why did you sentence him for half the amount? You're not recognized, Senator. Senator you, You don't want her to answer that question? You wouldn't allow her any. Anyway. M- Mr. Chairman, she may answer the question I've asked her. Why she sent Stewart an gone egregious over the time, senator by two minutes. Why she? And a s- half. Because you've interrupted me for two minutes, Mr. Chairman. Will you allow her to answer the question, or do you not want the American people to hear why, with someone she described as well, an egregious? You know, there comes a point, Senator, where you get a little bit. Chairman Durbin, in. will you allow her to answer the question? You won't allow her to answer. I I, I will happily allow her. To... The question is senator, why. Is thank you, you Senator Stewart, an egregious child pornography possessor. So- to, to half of the amount Please, requested by the prosecutor. Please, Senator.
1: So you remember how Senator Sass said that if you were going to engage in this kind of behavior, the shouting and carrying on, getting angry in these uh, in these hearings, that you would be doing that in large part to get your face on TV. It's not just, as you said earlier, Jeremy, not just about being on TV, uh, you know, direct from the hearing. It's also that you want to be on Fox News Channel. Well, here's Senator Cruz. He got his wish. He was right there with Sean Hannity that night on FNC. And when it
0: came to critical race theory, she didn't want to answer the question. She, she claimed she didn't really know what it was or what it contained. Of course, she had previously given a speech at a law school where she said that sentencing, what judges do, uh, involves critical race theory. And, and, and I got to say, there was a lot of discussion about her record when it concerns sexual offenders and in particular sexual predators targeted at kids as as you just played i asked her about what she wrote in law school that 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 suggested that the laws that many states have passed providing for civil commitment for violent sexual predators that those laws are unconstitutional and and you know we went through every single case that she's presided over as a district judge Uh, where the defendant was convicted of possession of child pornography, every case that she had discretion in, she consistently sentenced the defendant to substantially below the sentencing guidelines and substantially below what the prosecutor
1: asked for over and over and over again. Uh, Jeremy, whether it's thin on facts or not, it is just gold right now for a Republican, who is in all likelihood running for president in 2024 to be on Fox News Channel with Sean Hannity bad-mouthing Joe Biden's nominee for the Supreme Court. Uh, Actually, as far as a a Republican trying to do well in a presidential primary that would be coming up, it would be hard to position yourself any better than that.
2: Yeah, exactly. If there's one place you want to be, if you have any hope of being the Republican nominee in 2024, uh, it's, on Sean Hannity's show. It's like, if you're not on he's, he's the gold standard right now for Republicans to want to have that moment because he has an audience, a loyal fan base audience. And a lot of times that also translates into his radio program, which is, you know, spanning out all over the country. You get a lot of reach, you know, when you're getting on his show eventually. And so, and Cruz just scored it. I thought like he ended up with 10 minutes, you know, on that show, you know, that, you know, it's That's like, and then, the next day, he was on the Jesse Waters show, which is the primetime show at seven o'clock, and he was on mm-hmm. there for a bunch too. It's like the guy was all over the conservative media world. He was on Blaze TV, he was on Breitbart, he was on everything you can think of in conservative world, you know, and, you know. Again, if you want to be competitive, you know, it's like a lot of people talking about Ron DeSantis as a potential, you mm-hmm. know, candidate if Donald Trump's not running. Well, Ted Cruz is making it clear that he's going to be in that conversation, too. And I think sure. by being on TV for a week with Ron DeSantis not being the guy <laughs> who's being toasted by everybody, it just, it just gave yeah. you know, Cruz a chance to go, oh, but remember me? I'm the guy who won Iowa against Donald Trump. I'm the one who won 11 states. You know, that guy, you know, I'm still second. Don't forget about it It was on Monday night, even like after the the initial opening statements, he held a big fundraising call, you know, know, to a lot of his supporters. You know, I was on that call for a short period of time before the the line killed out. But like Mm -hmm. this is a guy who is aggressively fundraising during Supreme Court week while he's on, uh, you know, Hannity, you know, the next night. You know, it's like this guy knows what he's doing.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and it's not a stretch at all to say. And I said this on a television program earlier today uh, in Austin. Not a stretch to say the guy's running for president. He's basically said that he is right. Yep. I mean, he's he's he said, and he laid out the case previously. For why the second runner up or why the runner up in uh, in the presidential nominating contest should be sort of the heir apparent next time around. Problem with that is that the guy who actually did win the nomination last time keeps acting like he's going to run as well. Right. I mean, there's no (laughs) there has been no indication from former President Trump that he's out of the running.
2: Yeah, another thing. I was going through the campaign finance records because I can can show you how aggressively somebody's moving on something. You know, Ted Cruz has raised twenty seven million dollars. You know, heading into his next reelection, which isn't until mm-hmm. four years from now, right? And it's like yeah. so. It, it, there's only one other Republican in the entire United States Senate who's raised more money than him. You know, it's like Ted Cruz is like way up there right now. He is way ahead of most other Republicans. You know, think of guys like Marco Rubio and Rand Paul who also harbor those ambitions of being president. They're not even close Mm -hmm. to being able to raise the kind of money Ted Cruz is raising right now. And again, him being that aggressive, you know, yeah, you don't have to like get too far in imagination to realize this guy is going to be in Iowa this summer, Mm -hmm. you know, at the fair Eating a chili dog or a corn dog or whatever the heck they eat up there, right?
1: <laughs> Senator Cruz, Republican of Ted Cruz, serving the folks in Texas so well. Um, his old adversary. Beto O'Rourke, of course, not running against him anymore, now running against Greg Abbott. And we've raised this question before, Jeremy, and I'm going to bring it up again in light of some recent comments. It might be even more timely now. Remember we asked, and I can't remember if it was you or I, sometimes our brilliance just runs together. I can't (laughs) really remember who framed it up this way, but I'll ask the question. I'll do it this time. Is Beto O'Rourke being a little too mean this time around, a little too aggressive as a candidate? Here's why I asked. While we were on vacation— South by And and it's the vacation that I take right around South by Southwest in Austin every year when it's in person, which, you know, it was not in person for the pandemic, Uh, but they're back in Austin. And I'm glad for all those people to come to Austin and spend their money. But that's when I leave. That's when I go somewhere else. I was in Philadelphia with my daughter last week. It was great. Beto O'Rourke was there at South by Southwest. He was uh, talking to, let's see, to a retiring moderator there. And he called Greg Abbott. Both a thug and an authoritarian. I want you to listen to this.
5: You are seeing, I just had a chance to meet with the ambassador from the EU. Okay. And we talked about the fact that you're seeing the continued rise of authoritarians and thugs across the world. And we have our own right here in the state of Texas. Greg Abbott is a thug in your mind? He's a thug, he's an authoritarian. Let me make the case. Um, not only could this guy, through his own incompetence, not keep the lights on in the energy capital of the planet last February, but when people like Kelsey Warren and other energy company CEOs made more than $11 billion in profit over five days, selling gas for 200 times the going rate, not only did he not claw back those illegal profits, not only was there no justice for the more than 700 people who were killed, who literally froze to death in their homes, outside, in their cars. People who are paying now tens of billions of dollars cumulatively to pay for the property damage that the flooding that ensued caused in their homes, but he's taking millions of dollars in payoffs from these same people who made that. He's got his own oligarch here in the state of Texas. You think this stuff only exists in Russia or in other parts of the world? It's happening right here. You think they rig elections in other parts of the planet? It is the toughest state in the nation in which to vote right here. Fifty percent. Of some of the mail in ballot requests in some counties were denied, including by a 95 year old World War II veteran who was willing to give his life to fight fascism 70 years ago, half a world away, to defend democracy at home and cannot participate in elections in this state. This is a guy who is attacking women, will not allow them to make their own reproductive health care decisions about their own body, their own health, their own future, puts a $10,000 target on the back of anyone who tries
1: to assist any women. That's a lot, uh, but he was not done. You remember we covered this, uh, the issue of allegations of child abuse in state-funded facilities that are happening at the same time, these, these allegations being made, uh, and who knows what the real truth is. I know that uh, DPS, uh, the head of the Department of Public Safety, did testify uh, that it's not quite what had been reported in the media, but there was no denying that there's lots of problems. Um, when it comes to that issue, uh, Beto O'Rourke said that Abbott has been uh, completely focused on the wrong things. He said instead of focusing on actual child abuse, uh, that Abbott has been focused on uh, what Beto and others would say is just phony. The idea that any parent who's trying to get gender affirming care for their transgender children, that that would be child abuse. Here's what he said about that. Those same
5: kids who had been rescued from sex traffickers are now being trafficked for sex by their guardians in the state of Texas. The governor knew there was a problem for four months and did not do shit to help those kids out. You know what he did instead? He tried to further divide and fracture and polarize this state, pitting us against each other on issues like abortion and transgender kids and letting anyone who wants carry a loaded gun in public without any kind of background check or vetting or training whatsoever. We do have real challenges and problems in the state of Texas. When I'm governor, We are going to focus on
1: of course he got a big pop from the crowd on that a fairly liberal democratic crowd is usually going to be at south by southwest i am old enough to remember jeremy and as a balding 41 year old man it's mostly because i deal with politicians all day white beard as well that's where i'm at in life but i'm old enough to remember when beto o'rourke would not say anything negative almost about ted cruz right and and now here he is just laying into greg abbott i mean definitely a shift Is it working for him? Is it not working for him? What's your take?
2: Well, it it certainly feels like he's living up to the story. I, I thought I was going on a limb when I first wrote it when he went to San Antonio, and he was just like... That's when we first started hearing him, you know, back it was that January where he was really going intensely after Greg Abbott, Um, and 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 we always knew he had to do more against Abbott. Abbott does not have the negatives that Ted Cruz has, right? You know, when when Beto O'Rourke was running against uh, Ted Cruz, already Ted Cruz had damage even within moderate, you know, ranks of both Republicans and Democrats and Independents, and so O'Rourke could exploit that. You know, Greg Abbott doesn't have that same problem. You know, Greg Abbott, you know, uh, has much better numbers with independents, much better number, you know, with moderate Republicans than, you know, Ted Cruz had. And so it's a, so what or O'Rourke has to do is explain to all of us why we have to get rid of Abbott. Why is he not, mm-hmm. you know, he has to be like so bad we have to kick him out. And right. with the economy going great, you know – by most accounts, whether it's Biden's, you know, or Abbott or whoever, it doesn't matter at this point. Right. It's like it's mm-hmm. going well enough where that's not going to be the 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 issue that decides whether or not somebody's going to kick the guy out. So O'Rourke oh, yeah. has a lot of pressure on him to kind of prove why Greg Abbott. He has to go, and he can't be that nice guy, touchy-feely guy back with Ted Cruz where he kept telling us, this is not about any one person. This is about all of us. It's like, well, in this case, Mm -hmm. this race is all about Greg Abbott. If you're going to beat him, it has to be a referendum on Abbott, and it can't just be, we think you're a nice guy, Beto, but why should we replace the governor who is not causing us enough trouble? In this case, obviously, Beto's showing – or trying to show why we need to get rid of the guy, and so I, I, I kind of, he's doing what he's supposed to do, mm-hmm. which I don't know if that's because you know advisors have gotten to him, or if that's just kind of innately kind of where he sees this race at this point. But like, yeah. expect a lot more of that because he has to make this. He has to make Greg Abbott, Ted Cruz. Can that happen? I don't know.
1: Well, and I think there's some interesting cross currents here. You know, you mentioned the uh, the economy, and uh, perhaps ironically, if the economy is going uh, well, um, at least in Texas, uh, that of course is going to accrue to the benefit of uh, of the incumbent. If the economy is going badly, well, let's say the but the perception of the economy is that it's going badly, which is what actually matters in the election, right? That elections are not fair. and and when the uh, when the voters think that the economy is not going great, that is usually a net negative. For the incumbent in the white house yes right people people will say that if the economy is going badly that's because of the democrats and i have seen polling that i trust that says that look beto o'rourke and other statewide democrats in texas are inextricably linked to president biden so for better or worse if biden goes up by five points then they go up by five points if he goes down by two points they go down by two points that probably is reflective of the reality. Um, and then I think the other thing is Beto is is interesting. He's, it's interestingly positioned. I called him Beto, right? We call him Beto. Everybody knows who I'm talking about, right? It's yeah. He's got that kind of name ID, like Oprah or Rihanna or is anybody who you can just say one name, right? Kanye, <laughs> anyone would know who I'm talking about if I just say the one word, right? Um, he's a known quantity, so he doesn't have to do the thing that a lot of challengers have to do, Great which point. is first introduce themselves, right? First, they have to spend months just introducing themselves, yeah. and they they and when they're doing that, when you're when you're building your name ID. And when you're introducing yourself during a campaign, typically that's when you say a lot of just positive things, right? You talk about building a coalition and about how this is, like you said, he said before, this is about all of us. And it's not about any one person. Uh, Since he's a known quantity, he can afford to go ahead and on the attack, whereas other challengers at this point in the election cycle wouldn't be able to do that. I wonder, Jeremy, if he's going to be able to, uh, if this is what his campaign thinks is necessary, shift back to being more of the happy warrior, because you still get some of that from yeah. him. But I think on balance, you've heard a lot more negativity from him at this point than anything positive.
2: Yeah, I think he he has to set this up for a while, right? He's gonna ha- he has to make this known. It's like, and so here's the weird thing: I've never covered a race like this where you know I would dare say that people have a better sense of whether or not they love or hate, you know, or are fine with Beto than they do with Greg Abbott, right? It's it's like I, I know that it might be going on a limb here, but I think he's actually maybe better known. Than Greg Abbott, just because of all the national attention he got, and I think there there's still some Republicans who are like, "Yeah, Greg Abbott." I don't have a law. You know, you look at the polls, and you'll see there's a lot of like, I don't know, haven't heard enough yet. Still with Greg Abbott, who's been in office for 30 years in Texas, right. and you, mm-hmm. Beto, there's like none of the uh, don't know or I don't have an opinion of. Right, everybody has an opinion of Beto at this point, point. and so it's like, and that, like, it's interesting because that puts us in a flip position. Like you are saying, it's like, you know, Beto doesn't have to worry about being defined by Greg Abbott in a lot of respect, right? right? Because everybody already knows who Beto is. There are things you can do around the edges. But in this case... Beto could help define who Greg Abbott is. And that's what you're hearing him do. It's like, you know, because there's still some people who don't have a great feel for, you know, Greg Abbott. Again, he's not like Rick Perry or George W. Bush beforehand, you know, where they were just like, they were so, such distinguishable characters in their own right. Abbott was kind of a guy who didn't make a lot of news for quite some time, right? You know, he wasn't Mm -hmm. like a hot button kind of guy. And so there's a lot of like, you know, moderate, I think, People in Texas who just don't have a strong opinion, but now yeah. here Beto is has a chance to make that opinion. He's a corrupt, bribe-taking, you know, cares about you know only his donors kind of guy.
1: Yeah, it matters what swing voters in Texas will do, and yeah. I, I've gotten some pushback when I've made that comment. But we do because there are people who will say, "Well, are there any real swing voters in Texas?" There are. Remember, there were a half million people who voted for Abbott and Beto in 2018. Yeah. Right. What are those people going to do this time around? If you extrapolate out to whatever the election and whatever the electorate is this time around, what do those people, the people of that mindset, what do they do? They're up for grabs. Right. And I do think and this is my gut on this, Jeremy, you you tell me if I'm crazy. Grade my paper. So I do think that in the governor's race and therefore um, in in all of the statewide races, because a lot of these folks will sink and swim together. There are some potentially ticking time bombs of issues. Number one, if the lights go out, I can tell you Abbott's campaign is worried about that, right? A blackout in Texas or rolling blackouts in Texas in the middle of the summer would be a political disaster for the governor after what happened in the winter storm last February. That's a short version of that. Um, I think that if you have something potentially blow up with this Kelsey Warren lawsuit uh, that Beto was talking about where uh, one of Abbott's mega donors is suing Beto for defamation, let's just say... We And this would not be completely crazy. Let's just say there's discovery in that lawsuit and we get to see some text messages or emails between Kelsey Warren, who wrote a million-dollar check to Abbott, and Abbott. Let's say we got a text message exchange between them, and the exchange went something like this, and this would be during the week of the winter storm when people were dying, freezing, their water pipes were busting, all of that. What if the text looked like this? What if Warren said, man, it would really be great if electricity prices stayed as high as they could right now, and Abbott just sent him back the thumbs-up emoji? Wow, what would what would people think about that? I'm not saying that's going to happen, but, but what if something like that happened? Totally possible with this lawsuit out there that I can tell you the Abbott campaign is not happy about. Um, I'll give you one more that's not in the uh, governor's race, but let's say Ken Paxton is the Republican nominee for his job for attorney general. And somewhere in the middle of October, you call them October surprises for a reason, let's say one morning we wake up and in newspapers all across Texas, the the front page is a big headline that says Attorney General Paxton indicted by the feds and the big picture that goes with it is uh Paxton in handcuffs with FBI windbreakers in the foreground uh, yeah. that's the kind of thing that could also be a ticking time bomb right he's under investigation so here's my gut on it i think none of those things actually guarantees a democrat wins those races but i do think if one of those things happens that or any of the any any combination of those things happens that that could make those real races.
2: Yeah, I agree. Well, and, and and I would also like add, it's like people keep asking me the same question you're getting. I'm sure everybody's asked. It's like, is this going to be really a, a close race? You know, I, yeah. I get it. I get it. But, you know, my answer is like, I'll, look, you know me by now on this podcast, like to talk about the numbers, like the numbers are very clear. You know, Beto O'Rourke lost by 219,000 votes in 2018. If you don't think that the state has gone more blue at you know since twenty eighteen you're probably not watching closely you know it's like if you look at what's happened in Houston in San Antonio in Dallas just in that time period, more people have signed up you know to register to vote in those areas than ever before, right and so we're left with the question don 't you think two hundred and nineteen thousand more people have registered to vote? I'm not saying they're all democratic uh, but just the results from twenty eighteen show us of course this is going to be a close race, you know, and and the actions of both Abbott and Beto show us that, you know, this is going to be a close race. They're both aggressive. Look how much traveling both Abbott and Beto are doing. You know, Beto gets a lot of credit for going to all these way, you know, far away, distant lands, talking to Republican crowds and like, you know, showing up in Abilene and wherever else. Well, you know don't forget Abbott's doing somewhat of the same thing. Greg Abbott is showing up to small county Republican Lincoln day dinners in places where they've never seen a sitting governor come through town. You know, Abbott knows the danger that Beto represents if he's not out there in those places too. And so you can see Abbott is working those territories, you know aggressively. so which tells you he knows this is a close race. If Beto gets ahead of Seam going, and if some, if like, if somehow like the Russia situation gets resolved and Joe Biden looks like, you know, he did something well mm-hmm. in, in getting yeah. us there, it's like all that's going to help add to the calculus. So I think, you know, this is definitely going to be a close race. You know, there's no doubt about that. Just well, ask either the Republican or Democratic candidates running for governor. They know it's going to be a close race until proven otherwise.
1: Yeah, I'm still not convinced of that. We'll We'll see. But I would say this. In, in in complete agreement with what you're saying on, on this point. To bolster your point, my friend, people like to think that Texas and California are like mirror images of each other politically. Like we're the big Republican state, or we're the big conservative state, and we are in a lot of ways. And California, of course, is the big Democratic state, and they're the big liberal state, and they are in a lot of ways. Former President Trump won Texas by six points. You know what? Joe Biden won California by about almost 30 points yeah right so 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 we are nowhere and so i think that as much as people want to think this is a republican fortress it's not as republican as california is democratic right Correct. at all making this a much more competitive kind of place. Of course, we'll be covering this election as we go. I did mention, and you heard Beto talk about uh, those uh, allegations of child sex abuse at uh, the state-funded facilities. Um, I do want to give the Texas Senate some credit. They did in the last week uh, do a hearing, they held a hearing in the Senate uh, about that, starting to look into what's going on at DFPS, which of course has been just, it's one of those agencies in state government that there's always a ton of problems with the foster care system. Senator Lois Kolkorist was presiding over uh, the hearing in the Senate, and this is the way that she started that hearing.
3: The uh, weight of this issue uh, deserves a lot of attention from us. And while not the seriousness of what the media and others had claimed, any kind of exploitation of any child in the custody of the state must be taken seriously.
1: So we'll see what they do with it, Jeremy. This was just an initial hearing. Uh, this is where, as I mentioned, the head of the uh, Department of Public Safety, Colonel Steve McGraw, he testified that the uh, the allegations uh, as portrayed in the media of young people being sex trafficked at a facility in Bastrop, that that was not completely accurate. He said that they didn't have evidence that that had happened. Um, But it is clear there are many issues uh, with what's happening with these children. And as one veteran reporter uh, pointed out on social media just the other day in the last 30 years, at least uh, every single time, there's some big issue with, uh, with foster care, with DFPS, you have lawmakers saying that they're going to fix it, and they're going to make the investments necessary to fix it, and it just never happens. Um, this week at the Texas Capitol, uh, interesting, there was strong bipartisan support for a push to block an execution. I've been around long enough to say that I can remember when that would not ever have happened in Texas, right? This has yep. been a, you know, the the politics of the death penalty. Um, it's something that You either don't hear it as much where people are debating the death penalty or they just are talking about it in a very different way, right? I mean, of course, for many years, for decades, Texas would be the the state that was executing the most people. And the trend on that has been moving downward. In this case, more than 80 members of the Texas House and its Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and liberals are joining together to ask the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles to step in. And blocked the execution of a woman named Melissa Lucio, who's a mother of 14 children from the Rio Grande Valley, and the details on the case are just heartbreaking. Uh, one of her children, two-year-old baby named Mariah, back in 2007, uh, died, and the allegation was that the mother killed her. Now, the uh, family. The entire family, by the way, There's no, no one in the family has any different version of the story. The family and the attorneys for the family say that it was just a tragic accident, that it was terrible, horrible accident. A two-year-old baby fell down a flight of stairs and didn't survive. Awful, awful situation. Um, the mother was prosecuted and sentenced to die uh, down there in Hidalgo County. Um, in the uh, McAllen area. Uh, it's actually, uh, she was from Harlingen is where she's from and she's on death row. Now, um, the guy who's leading the push to try to stop the execution from happening is Jeff Leach, who is the chairman of the, uh, Texas house, uh, judiciary and jurisprudence committee. And what he wanted to do in this news conference this week uh, at the Capitol was really reach out to people of faith, you know, and by the way, all people of faith, um, about this issue because for a lot of reasons including the fact that this woman had converted to catholicism she attends mass regularly in the texas prison system Uh, they say that you can hear her often praying from her cell um, and that she has been really just sort of uh, you know spreading the good word As as, you know, Christian uh, folks and and including evangelicals, I mentioned uh, that she's uh, converted to Catholicism, but a a lot of evangelicals would appreciate the fact that there are now more prisoners who are attending mass because she's, you know, one of the people always talking about it uh, in in the prison system. Uh, And here was Leach at the press conference uh, trying to reach out to people who might see him on television or might hear him on a podcast like this one.
5: My, my final words, I want to speak to the faith community. I'm very, very grateful for the Texas Conference of, of Catholic Bishops for speaking out on this. Uh, um, to, to those faith leaders out there, to those pastors um, who are paying attention to this case, um, I want to ask you to think deeply as well. Please don't bury your he- head in the sand on this. Um, speak out. Speak out for innocent life. The same people who crowd this building, and we welcome them to do so when we consider being uh, pro life legislation. We've considered uh, bills over the years, the same people who show up in flood and express their support for those bills. I would urge you and beg you um, to speak out on this issue as well because the life of a fellow Texan who very likely could be innocent is hanging in the balance.
1: During the news conference, I asked Chairman Leach uh, what he would say to the Roman Catholic who is in the governor's office, Greg Abbott, who, if I remember right, is the first Catholic governor of the state. Uh, this woman uh, has made a huge, uh, you know, uh, uh, transition. Uh, to 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 really being someone of faith and in the Catholic faith, uh, I asked uh, Chairman Leach what he would say to Governor Abbott about how he should search his faith and search his conscience on this. And what Leach said was, look, he's got, he says, I've got a great relationship with the governor. He is somebody who is a man of faith. He is somebody who is pro-life. And as Leach started to talk about it, he said he called it being pro-life, quote, from womb to tomb close quote, which is not the way conservatives have thought about it in the past. It was always more on the front end of life rather than the back end uh, of life, especially in these cases. Uh, Sinfronia Thompson, who's the Dean of the House, Democrat from Houston, also spoke at this deal, and uh, she said uh, that it was important to remember the words of former Governor George W. Bush in 1998 when he stepped in, with clemency for a death row inmate named Henry Lee Lucas. You may remember this case. This is what uh, Governor Bush said at the time. He put out a written statement and he said, quote, as a supporter of the death penalty for those who commit horrible crimes, I feel a special obligation to make sure the state of Texas never executes a person for a crime they may have not committed. I take this action so that all Texans can continue to trust the integrity and fairness of our criminal justice system. Here's what I think is, and we'll see what happens with this. The, um, the execution date is set for April 27th. So they're running out of time. Uh, chairman Leach said that they're focusing on the board of pardons and paroles right now. Let's not kid ourselves though. This is up to the governor as far as what will actually happen with this. Right, Jeremy. Um, and we, um, we know that, the governor could go different ways based on political considerations. There is right now. And here's what I would say about it from, you know, the commentary standpoint, there is right now. And we heard about it in the judge Ketanji Brown Jackson confirmation hearings. It was on full display what Senator Cruz was talking about with some of the issues he was raising. It was a real push to go backward on the efforts by some Republicans to go in the right on crime direction, the smart on crime direction. Right. We're we're moving back now, at least in Republican politics toward the hang 'em high in the Texas sky, tough on crime, the, the old school district attorneys who are now no longer in office in big state, uh, big, uh, you know, uh, big counties around Texas. Right now we have Democrats in office in, in a lot of the big counties like in Dallas County and Harris County and Bear County and uh, in, in you know, Travis County. And so uh, the DAs are going one direction statewide Republicans and folks like Ted Cruz moving in the direction of tough on crime no matter what in this particular case. Uh, you know, we know that, you know, a search of the court records will tell you this is not a woman who was ever uh, somebody who would say it was a perfect person at all. But if she didn't actually kill her baby, then you know, then and nobody's saying that, hey, she should even get out of prison. I didn't hear any of them say that at the press conference, but they're saying if she didn't kill her baby, then she shouldn't be executed. James White who has been the uh, corrections chair and is now the public safety chair in the Texas house, he said, look, you have a lot of systems that failed this person, the CPS system, which we were just talking about and the educational system. And now maybe the um, the court system as well. Uh, and so I think there really is um, attention within um, all the Democrats would agree with this, just about all of them, that, that the woman should not be executed, but within the Republican party, there's this debate about either continuing on this path toward being smart on crime and those who just want to be tough on crime no matter what, because that is what their base is telling them.
2: Yeah, you see, criminal justice has become one of the rare areas where you can get bipartisan support. You know, it's not as splashy and, you know, gets, you know, the headlines as some of the other stuff out there, but you see it, you know, in the U.S. Senate and in the Texas legislature, there's continually moments where both Republicans and Democrats understand that like there's a way to be smarter about how we're handling all criminal justice issues rather than Mm -hmm. just the, you know – having a three strikes in your outlaw period and be done with it. You wanted, you, you know, you get people want to talk tough on crime, but like the Washington post, you know, people should check it out. They just had pushed out a story about one of the people that Ted Cruz was going after in his exchanges with, you know, judge Brown or judge Brown Jackson, you know, it's like the same, you know, you know, they talked to the, the guy who was part of the whole discussion. And it's like, you kind of read his story and hear his story. And just like, you know, would he been served if we'd sent him to jail for 10 years? Or should they have been like a smarter way to kind of handle his case? You know, it's right. like, and I think there's a lot of agreement with Republicans and Democrats when they want to get away from the TV cameras. Ben Sass, you're correct. <laughs> when you get everybody away from the TV cameras, there is agreement on some of these core principles of like, you know, maybe everybody who's caught with, you know, if you, you know. Grams of cocaine shouldn't go Mm -hmm. to jail for the same amount of time, you know, just because, you know, maybe there's a way to kind of work this out better.
1: Yeah. And of course, we'll keep an eye on this uh, this case. It's going to be uh, high profile. It's garnered some national attention already uh, because of the facts in the case. If you, if you go through it and we have it at quorumreport.com, um, Chairman Leach's office uh, sent us the full background on the case so you can read it for yourself. And actually, uh, because of the weight of this, uh, I made that link in the story free. It's above the paywall if people want to check it out at quorumreport.com. Um, I think that this tension In the Republican Party, I'm not sure how it's going to get worked out for now in the Texas House, it seems that the speaker and leadership there want to move in the direction of more criminal justice reform. And in the Texas Senate, it's the opposite. You may remember that during the last legislative session, there was real tension between Chairman Leach and uh, Joe Moody, who's a representative from El Paso, who's a Democrat. He and Leach have um, uh, partnered on some of these things in bipartisan fashion. They would get some of these bills on criminal justice reform passed in the House, and it would just hit a brick wall with Dan Patrick, who is still in that mold of, no, no, it is old school Texas justice, right? Just be the tough as you can. And I would also note the irony Of Senator Cruz moving back in this tough on crime direction when he was a key player on the First Step Act, which was, you know, promoted by people who are both conservative and uh, liberal and signed by former President Trump. Some of these key criminal justice uh, reforms uh, that some folks thought would never happen in Washington, and yet they did find some bipartisan agreement on that. Uh, So again, we'll we'll, we'll continue to watch that. One other thing here, um, as we wrap up, you remember the guy who was rapping at uh, Dallas City Council and covering himself in—he <laughs> was rapping about uh, the pandemic and covering himself in uh, what—in the—in the, in the uh, hand sanitizer. He had it all over his face in Dallas. This time, I think he was only putting it on his hands. He was at Plano City Council, and I think he must. This guy—I don't even—I don't even care enough to look up the guy's name. But I like that there's civic engagement. So the guy is. <laughs> The guy is rapping at Plano City Council, and I thought he he um, he really homed in on something that's going to be key in this election. Uh, and the audio here is not great, so you got to—I'll warn you, dear listener—turn your if you've if you've got your earbuds in, turn them down a little bit. It, it's not great because he's screaming into the microphone. All right, I'm giving you that warning right now. But listen to this guy rapping uh, in Collin County.
0: Gas prices way too high. Vladimir Putin
5: needs to. For dinner, okay. You want to go to, uh, I just want to say,
3: own- I love you. We need to take out Vladimir Putin, like Lindsey Graham said. Thank you, Mayor Mullins. I appreciate the time. Peace. God bless you all. Prime Time on Instagram. Thank you. We got you down. We got you down.
1: You know, we started with Jackassery, and we're ending with some of it here. Look, as you said earlier, you have uh, the uh, Ukraine Russia conflict underway. And being a determinative, a determinative moment in uh, in geopolitics, world politics, the thing he was wrapping there though that I think is key is gas prices are way too high. People are very angry about this, Jeremy. And they, I mean, the reality is back here in the states, and even in an energy producing state like Texas, people care about that a lot. You can see it in the polling. You can see it in people's social media posts. They're angry about the high price of gas and there are two things in Texas that I think are fascinating about this number one um, we have a much more diversified economy than we did back in the 1980s when you know we think about the big bust in the oil and gas industry yes. and how it really decimated the Texas economy at this time we would you know now we would still not want a bust in the in the you know in the oil patch um, but it doesn't affect us in quite the same way. And if you think about, uh, the price of gas, uh, as a double edged sword, especially in a place like Houston or in the Valley, uh, places that, you know, have a a lot of ties to, and, and have, you know, the energy industry rooted in them, like Houston does. If if you want to, uh, find all of the smartest people in the world about how to get uh, hydrocarbons out of the ground, it's Houston, Texas, right? So, so it's a double edged sword. People don't want to pay too much for gas, but at the same time, you want the price of a, a barrel of oil to be at a certain level because that means good jobs for people that props up this state budget. Right. And you know, if you have oil, that's over a hundred dollars a barrel, um, it's too much right for the balance of what we need around here. You also don't want it to be at, you know, $20 or $10 as it's been at, at certain points, right, in, in not too distant history, right? It was during the Trump administration that we saw oil yep. prices just drop through the floor. Um, and so, you know, for state budget commitments and for the, the newly diversified economy of Texas or the, uh, the more diversified economy of Texas, we really want a price of a barrel of oil to be more like, you know, 55 to $80 a barrel, something like that. There's a sliding scale for exactly what's needed. Uh, but it just, it's not the same as it was many years ago.
2: For sure, you know it's like. Well, I asked the governor about that. He certainly, you know, felt like the economy's better and more diverse than it's as been. Uh, we've made a lot of gains over the last twenty years. You know, you think back to uh, those of us who came through the eighties and the boom and bust cycles were just painful. You know, for everything. You know, it's like, and so we we don't have that nearly as bad now, or maybe we will. We just don't know. It's like as as this Ukraine Russia, you know, war goes on. You know, I think we'll kind of get a better sense as to how much we're you know, really, you know, diversified and not.
1: Yeah. And, you know, as far as whether it's going to be um, a big issue in the election, as you have said so many times, it's a lifetime before the yes. election. I mean, gas prices might go right back down. I don't expect that during the summer, but they may be back down into a position that's more tolerable by the time we yep. get to the fall. And then it's not as much of a, an issue, you know, for for the average voter out there. Uh, and remember how the pandemic restrictions were such a big deal. And and that's how they were going to unseat Greg Abbott in the uh, Republican primary. But a lot of voters, it's like the goldfish in the bowl has made one revolution in the bowl and doesn't even remember what yep. happened you know, <laughs> exactly. six months ago. So we will keep an eye on all of this. All right. It's great to be back. Good to see you. It's good to welcome our new producer, Harper Carlton, who has uh, big shoes to fill. Sarah Schleed. Our old producer moving on. I think think Sarah was our longest-serving producer. I'm trying to remember how long she did it, so Harper, we'll look forward to working with you. Um, If you enjoy the show, and you know you do, you should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, however you listen to your favorite podcasts, including Spotify. A lot of people listen that way. Give us the best rating that you can, and by that I mean five stars. None of this four-star action. Subscribe at quorumreport.com, houstonchronicle.com, and we will see you next week.